We get it. You're busy. You don't have time to waste on the mainstream media. That's why Salem News Channel is here. We have hosts worth watching, actually discussing the topics that matter. Andrew Wilkow, Dinesh D'Souza, Brandon Tatum, and more. Open debate and free speech you won't find anywhere else. We're not like the other guys. We're Salem News Channel. Watch anytime on any screen for free 24-7 at snc.tv. And on Local Now, Channel 525. It's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. Yes, indeedy. And he's here to say hello, welcome, good to have you with us. It is a Tuesday, the 19th day of November. We are just about nine days away from Thanksgiving. You bought your turkey yet? Already starting to think about the seating list at my house. And uh, as you're thinking in that direction, we're going to talk a bit about our campaign to provide Thanksgiving meals to 700 needy Bay Area families. John Anderson from the Bay Area Rescue Mission will join us coming up a little bit later on. Also, constitutional lawyer Brad Dacus from the Pacific Justice Institute with an important First Amendment case update. And speaking of the Constitution, boy, um, as much as the proceedings going on in Washington, D.C., or allegedly all constitutionally based, I think it is remarkable how many people really don't understand all of the constitutional ins and outs of this so-called impeachment process. So we started the uh, the start of the program tonight. We take a couple of moments and uh, learn a bit of a lesson about some of the purpose, the history, the scope of impeachment. Joining us is best-selling author and the host of the nationally syndicated Bob Zadek show, heard locally here in the Bay Area on 860 AM the Answer Sunday mornings at 8 o'clock. Bob, great to have you on the program. And great to be back, Craig. Thanks so much for having me. Let's uh, let's talk a bit about this. There's, of course, a, a massive partisan angle to all of this. And, and as much as I think many that we see on the dais would like to purport that they understand what impeachment is all about, and one side you know, is yelling, impeach him, the other, guy, the other side says no, I guess it really demonstrates that outside of the fact that we've done this twice in the past, in 1868 with Andrew Johnson and more recently in 1998 with Bill Clinton. Understanding really the the history, the purpose, the scope of impeachment seems to elude a lot of people. Take a moment, if you would, and from the the historical roots of this all, help us better understand. Well, the founders debated this very important provision. Uh, There was a discussion of involving James Madison and some other founders on what exactly was to be the scope of impeachment. Uh, At the extremes, uh, some thought the president uh, could be impeached for maladministration. Now, there's a vague word for you. Others feared that to create something as vague as maladministration would be, in effect, to have the president serve at the pleasure of the Senate. And that was would be far too upsetting to the balance of power that is in the design of the Constitution. So what we know about impeachment is it requires something more than displeasure in the House and in the Senate. We know that from the, from the practice. We also know from the discussion 
that grounds for impeachment do not necessarily require the commission of a crime. We know that for a lot of reasons. First of all, at the time of the founding, there were only three federal crimes. Uh, now there are countless, but then there are only three. And the first use of impeachment in the constitutional sense was the impeachment of uh, a justice on the Supreme Court, Pickering, who came to work drunk, was abusive, was nasty, quite an unpleasant character, and that was felt by the founding generation to be sufficient grounds to impeach that Supreme Court justice. Now, he wasn't the president, but he was impeached under the same statute as the president is threatened to be impeached. So we have some sense of the statute. Um, therefore, we are left with not much guidance as to what are the official grounds on which somebody can be impeached. We know it's something less than criminality, something more than making people in the Senate unhappy. And beyond that, we don't have much scope. Now, what's interesting, Craig, is the present discussion uh, is at least a public discussion is missing a very important element. It appears from all that one can learn about what's going on in Congress that the accusation against the president is that he somehow was inducing Ukraine to investigate the Bidens because Biden was a political opponent and therefore Trump was putting his personal interests ahead of that of the country. That's a reasonable summary of what's going on. Now, when our audience listens to, follows the debate, uh, Socrates and the way he taught offers uh, using the Socratic method. It's an inter there's an interesting analysis that I invite our listeners to partake in. Let us assume, and it's a hypothetical I'm going to pose, but it's a challenge you want, Greg. Let us assume that it is suspected, I'm making this up, that Joe Biden, while he was vice president, passed state secrets, atomic secrets, whatever you want, important secrets. He passed the secrets to Russia or to the Ukraine. And let us assume that Trump discovers it while in office. And Trump not only um, would be wise to Ukraine investigate that, but he would, Trump would be guilty of treason if he didn't, and Trump should be impeached for not doing it. So, therefore, what we conclude is that if Biden was doing something bad, Trump is duty-bound to have it be investigated by anybody who can help. If we concede that point, then what if Biden was a suspected spy, but also running for president against Trump? Is Trump then prohibited from investigating Biden's possible treason? Of course not. Therefore, if what Trump did was lawful, if Biden is not running for president, then it has to be equally lawful if Biden is running for president, it can't change. And that analysis is missing from the public debate. 
Yeah, absolutely so, because, of course, the debate seems to be centered on so much that, at least in my opinion in watching the proceedings thus far, appears to be very opinion-oriented. I thought this, I thought that. And questions related to what's improper, inappropriate, uh, crazy, illegal, so on and so forth. I mean, it, it, it goes on ad nauseum, and yet, ironically, so much of those very specific details are not being touched on. It seems to be more about, well, this is how I felt. And I think one of the one of the underwriting issues ought to be here, and we saw this come out in the Mueller report, and that is the question of whether or not a reasonable prosecutor would bring a charge. And so far, that really has not been up for discussion. Craig, uh, I was um, in a private meeting with a member of the House of Representatives quite recently, a very smart fellow, and he pointed out to the group in his presence he was a Republican, a Republican, that there are four federal statutes, all of which were approved and signed by, by Schiff and by Pelosi. It was, they were four bipartisan statutes. Each of the four required, not suggested, required, Craig, that's an important word, required the president to carefully look into corruption in the Ukraine before any foreign aid was given to the Ukraine. So Trump, whether he knew it or not, put that aside, I'm not a mind reader, but Trump, in doing what he was doing, was obeying four federal statutes. If he hadn't done that, that would be grounds for impeachment. He didn't obey federal law. So. The only variable is it also happened to be that Biden is his opponent, possibly, in a presidential election. That additional fact cannot make an otherwise compulsory and certainly lawful act, it can't make it wrongful. That is the obvious and fatal fallacy. And nobody has mentioned these four federal statutes, each of which named the Ukraine as being the third most corrupt country on earth and requiring the president to investigate corruption. Certainly what he was doing was investigating corruption, i.e. doing what the law compelled him to do. How can you impeach a president for doing what he's required to do by the mere happenstance that the target of the investigation is his possible political opponents? Well, and they perhaps should also be mindful when they wish to expand the impeachment powers, the the remedy scope beyond its constitutional limits in this case, uh, hoping in a sense to sort of, uh, what should we say, punish the president, um, deal with a guy that they don't like? Well, remember that 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 sword can cut in the opposite direction at a potential later date, uh, creating even more problems for the future of the republic. And I, I postscript here, it was many years ago. Uh, but I have a little familiarity with the Ukraine. I have been there. I've spent time there. And even when I was there, albeit a decade ago, um, Ukraine, better than 50 percent of its economy turned on the black market. You talk about the breadth and depth of corruption. If 50 percent of the entire country's GDP is black market driven, wow, says a lot. Bob Zadek. Lawyer, host of The Bob Zadek Show, heard Sunday mornings at 
8 a.m. on our sister station, 8.60 a.m. The Answer. We invite you to tune in for that. Check them out online. Lots of great resources there, podcasts, and all of it at bobzadek.com. That's B-O-B-Z-A-D-E-K. Robert, I know you had a flight to catch. I appreciate you taking time to uh, educate us on these important points. There's Bob Zadek. Catch his show Sunday mornings, 8 o'clock, 8.60 a.m., The Answer. All right, let's see if we got an answer for you right now about the Tuesday ride. And from the KFAX Traffic Center, here's the latest. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. You ever seen somebody who's invisible? I think, well, Craig, what a preposterous question. If they're invisible, of course I've never seen them. Well, they are, in fact, the Bay Area's invisible people. You probably see them every day, but I bet by now, whether you're in San Francisco or um, some of the larger urban areas or even in suburban parts of the Bay Area, you probably have just so grown accustomed you look right past them. They are The Bay Area is homeless, and that number is increasing on a pretty startling basis. It's increasing for a variety of reasons. Some of it has to do with the high, extremely outrageous cost of living here in the San Francisco Bay Area. Sometimes it has to do with people that relocate to the Bay Area because they're out of answers elsewhere. Um, They come here because there's lots of resources available to them. The weather is far more friendly, certainly, than it is in parts of the country when we've had, you know, overnight lows in the, in the teens. But whatever the reason, they're there. And while they may be invisible for many folks, for believers, they shouldn't be. Scripture tells us that the poor we will always have with us. That does not mean they'll always be here, therefore you can ignore them, but rather that it is a responsibility incumbent upon you and I do something about. Joining me now from the Bay Area Rescue Mission is John Anderson. John was with us a couple of weeks ago as we launched our campaign to adopt 700 needy Bay Area families for Thanksgiving. And John, great to have you join us with an update. Well, thanks, Craig. It's always good to be on the air with you and talking to our KFAX listeners. I'm struck by something this year, um, both in our, our private dialogue as well as the observations that I make, just as anybody can living in the Bay Area, at, at such a sharp increase in the Bay Area's homeless, where, for example, in, in the community that I live in, you might see one or two people with a sign at the off end, uh, the off ramp of the freeway, things of this sort. You didn't see many downtown. You didn't see many of them wandering uh, along the boulevards that connect the suburb sections from uh, the downtown area. But that's changed now. And I would imagine with this increase, uh, the impact, the need, uh, the demand for services and ministry outreach on an organization like the Bay Area Rescue Mission must be pretty significant. It, it really is, Craig. You know, I've been involved in rescue mission ministry now since 1982, when I wandered into a rescue mission in Southern California, a cocaine addict that was homeless, without hope without uh, the knowledge of Jesus, and I got saved at that rescue mission, and God dramatically transformed my life. You know, Craig, back in 1982, the average age of the homeless person coming into a rescue mission was about 55 to 58 years old. Today, it's under 40. Uh, Back in the early 80s, 
about uh, 10% of the homeless population was made up of women and children. Today in the Bay Area, 60% of the homeless are women and children. The needs, uh, demographics have changed. I honestly thought when I first got involved in rescue mission ministry that we would see a constant uh, downturn in the number of people in need. But my goodness, especially over the last five to ten years, it seems that here in the Bay Area and in other parts of our country, the homeless population has just dramatically increased. The needs that we're looking at are staggering. This Thanksgiving season, uh, starting next Monday, we'll be serving Thanksgiving dinners, giving away boxes of hope for needy families that just can't afford to buy a turkey in our community. We're providing 28,000 meals in total the week of Thanksgiving. And like you said, when I was on the air with you a couple weeks ago, we were able to raise the funds enough to pay for, uh, what was it, 330 boxes of hope. But we still need another 359. So roughly halfway there, but yet a long ways to go. And and I want to be clear about something, John, because when we talk about providing these boxes of hope, and for the benefit of listeners that aren't aware, this box of hope is is a box. It's filled with a traditional Thanksgiving feast, everything that you're going to enjoy at Thanksgiving, the the average uh, you know celebration, the turkey, the pie, the uh, cranberry sauce, stuffing, vegetables, all those goodies. It will feed the average family of four enough food, about 20 meals in that box. And this is not just, hey, let's let's do something nice for them. Um, many of these families are right at the brink of, of starvation. Many of them are struggling day to day. Many of them, in fact, have to rely on organizations like the Bay Area Rescue Mission just to get enough to eat. That's the reality in the Bay Area in 2019. You live here, you know. What's an apartment cost to rent? $3,500? What's the average home in the city of San Francisco? $1.3 million. What's a house payment like that? Over five grand, six grand a month? I mean, you live here. You know what it's like. We want to show some tenderness for these hurting families. And uh, we've got about another 360 boxes, families that need to be adopted. And I want to challenge you right now to uh, join us in this miracle. A $40 gift will provide a needy family with a box of hope. A gift of $80 will provide Thanksgiving boxes of hope for two needy families. And if you can give a gift tonight of $120, that'll provide Thanksgiving boxes of hope for three needy families. Now, you can go online to kfax.com and click on the Bay Area Rescue Mission banner at the top of the homepage and securely give your giving online. You can call right now if you want. Uh, we've got uh, Joel standing by with nimble fingers to, uh, to take your gift order at 888-367-5329. That's 888-367-5329. Remember, Visa, MasterCard, American Express, Discover, any major credit card, or you can give your gift by check. Um, time's a-waning. We are counting down nine days to Thanksgiving, and uh, of the stated goal of 700 needy families that we wish to adopt this Thanksgiving here in the Bay Area, we're just slightly halfway to that goal. So we need a miracle, and we need you to help us make it happen. 888-367-5329. That's 
1-800-367-5329 if you'd like to call right now and give that gift or give securely online at kfax.com. We'll have a special day tomorrow set aside to uh, encouraging folks to be a part of this miracle and to make sure that none of these families go without this Thanksgiving. John Anderson, we appreciate the update. I know that uh, there's going to be a lot of work going on there at the Bay Area Rescue Mission for the next several days, and I would suspect that the deadline to uh, purchase these turkeys is coming up pretty quickly. It really is. In fact, uh, the day that we give away the boxes of hope is two days before Thanksgiving, so it's one week from today. We'll start about 8 o'clock Tuesday morning, one week from today. All we need, to be honest, is 360 KFAX listeners to donate $40 each. That will take care of it. We'll cover the boxes of hope that people are counting on and give us the opportunity to share the gospel with each and every one of them. You know, John, you put it in those terms, and this is something that everybody can get involved with. So uh, we've certainly got a lot more than 360 listeners. In fact, we were with a a gathering of listeners uh, last Friday evening of... uh, about 360 listeners. So uh, how about all of you to uh, join in? If each would give a $40 gift, we could make sure that every one of these needy families are sponsored for just $40. Think about that. 888 Joel is there by himself, and he'll take your pledge. 888 Easier yet, online, kfax.com. Look for the Bay Area Rescue Mission banner at the top of the homepage. That's kfax.com. Our thanks to John Anderson. He'll be back with us tomorrow for more as we update you on our progress. 360 more families that need to be adopted. Thanksgiving Boxes of Hope. Just $40 makes it happen. Would you give that gift right now? KFAX.com. Get a look at traffic for you right now at the KFAX Traffic Center. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. All right, welcome back to the conversation. And uh, Joel says, yeah, he'll take a couple of more calls to uh, help adopt all of those needy families. 888-367-5329, that's the toll-free number to call with your gift. $40 will provide a needy family with a box of hope filled with a traditional Thanksgiving feast to feed the average needy family of four. It will supply, in fact, enough food for about 20 meals per family. We've committed to do about 700 families uh, they've actually signed up and been identified as they have the need, and we want to meet it. So uh, if you jump in with a gift tonight, you'll help accomplish just that goal. 888 We cover First Amendment right all issues on this program with some degree of um, frequency. And, and, and I say that not with a sense of pride, but sadly so, because we are oftentimes forced to deal with such issues. You would think the protections afforded by the Constitution would uh, would put us in a position where that didn't, didn't need to be done. But sadly, some people ignore what the Constitution has to say about freedom of speech and expression of one's own uh, faith, um, as in the case of a gentleman, Mark Mayberry, up in Portland, Oregon. Waterfront Park, if you're familiar with it, many Portland Oregonians are, or folks that have visited the area. He was there as an evangelist, just kind of hanging out and um, sharing um, 
his concern for the plight of the unborn, and that's where he found himself in a bit of trouble. Let's get more. Constitutional lawyer, the founder and president of the Pacific Justice Institute, Brad Dacus, joins us with the details. Counselor, what's going on? Yeah, so this gentleman, um, he loves to, uh, to to share his faith publicly, and uh, the, the gospel message, along with the, the, the pro-life message, and uh, he does that, and um, he does it in a, in a, just a real zeal and love uh, for what he uh, stands stands for, for the unborn, etc. And anyway, he uh, he's out there doing, you know, sharing his faith, um, giving tracts out, and and uh, he's told by law enforcement that uh, that he can't be there. He has to um, not be here for for another thirty days. He has to uh, you know to leave the to not be at the park for. And it was just, he just said, this is violates my, my constitutional rights. I know this isn't right. And so, anyway, the law enforcement went ahead and uh, brought uh, uh, charges against him or arrested him to have charges brought against him. And um, and so they're bringing charges against him. Our attorney steps in, uh, Ray Hackey, did a great job, represented him. Um, so the city auditor um, went ahead and dropped the charges, which is good. Um but the problem is, Craig, they have a track record of doing this, of harassing people preaching in public places, protected public places. Uh, so uh, we're stepping in and we're uh, filing a civil lawsuit. Uh, they even had an injunction earlier. They're so bad. They had a court order to stop them, stop um, interfering with people who want to uh, preach and speak in public places. And they, they still did it anyway. So uh, we're stepping in and we're representing uh, him in, uh, in a civil lawsuit now after being criminally prosecuted. Uh, ironic, isn't it? Because so often, and many of these communities, and, and Portland uh, particularly so, uh, has historically prided itself on being liberal. And back in the day, the at least traditional definition used to be, you know, someone that was open-minded and not uh, confined by a, a firm or a strident set of rules and open to other ideas and, and certainly open to allowing others to express those ideas. I mean, back in the heyday of the free speech movement in the 1960s at, at Berkeley, um, many folks said, oh, there they go again, those crazy liberals, they just want to get up and express their minds openly. How far we've come or not in the ensuing 45 or 50 years from the days of liberal meaning, uh, encouraging freedom of speech and expression to uh, liberal communities like Berkeley, like Portland, Oregon, that seem to want to do anything but encourage it. In fact, they want to stifle it if it doesn't have to be the kind of speech, the kind of speech that they agree with. Yeah, and I think that really hits, hits it right, right where, it's, where they're coming from. Uh, it's not the fact that there's a speaker. It's the speech. And that's why they pick on people out there who are uh, passing out gospel tracts, sharing the gospel, sharing uh, their convictions on protecting the unborn. And uh, and I think that's really where the real rub is. And that's real unfortunate, because that is what the First Amendment is there to protect, which is speech that uh, perhaps those in government may not want you to say, uh, and yet you're still should be protected to be able to share your thoughts and expression in, in public places, in traditional public forums, which is what a, a public park is. 
Absolutely so. Now, as you indicate, um, there are steps being taken to uh, to deliver a message to the uh, the city of Portland, and 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 this is in spite of the fact that there had been a reversal, at least by the city auditor, who agreed that the officer's citation in this case against Mayberry uh, and the infringement of his uh, free speech rights under both Oregon as well as obviously. Um, the U.S. Constitution had been a, a bit of a field too far. The concern here is what, that it'll happen again? Oh, yes. And they've shown a pattern. And when a city shows a pattern of violating a particular civil liberty like free speech like this, then we have the legal grounds to come in and file a civil lawsuit uh, when you can show a, a continuous uh, pattern uh, like that. So that's what we're doing because Portland has become so bad that it's it's now right for a civil lawsuit. Uh, if the city makes a mistake here or there, the officer makes a mistake here or there, um, it's, you know, a civil lawsuit, it's really hard to prevail on a civil lawsuit. When, when they act like Portland, um, then they're, they're asking for it. And we, we're going to have to do that to really set a real clear message to Portland and cities like that, like Portland, that you cannot continually interfere with free speech rights just because you don't like the religious message or the pro-life message. Well, we appreciate the update and um, certainly hope that uh, the the message here is received by communities like Portland, Oregon, loud and clear, that uh, if you're going to pride yourself in standing up for uh, free speech, that it needs to include all types of speech. Of course, we're not endorsing hate speech or things on the crazy end, but, but simply a difference right. of opinions and ideas, which uh, this certainly seems to be, at least from the pro-life standpoint. Yeah, exactly. And uh, and that's what's what's so important is uh, you know this this you know even the apostle Paul he he advocated for just an even playing field just give me an even playing field <laughs> and I think that's what America is about is providing an even playing field for people to express their thoughts their their beliefs their convictions and from that uh, we see truth rise to the surface uh, with those uh, convictions uh, convicting others uh, you know the same so I, that's what we want to do and protect free speech and um, and not uh, allow it to be snuffed, snuffed out in a, in a world where um, only certain speech is protected um, and other speech is, is not. So that's very, very important. Absolutely so. Well, we appreciate uh, both the update and the hard work done by the Pacific Justice Institute to uh, stand up for the rights of people um, like Mark Mayberry, who have had their First Amendment rights trampled upon. Brad Dacus, founder and president of the Pacific Justice Institute, You can find out more about Pacific Justice online at pacificjustice.org. That's pacificjustice.org. Fifteen away from 6 o'clock here on this uh, growing cold now, isn't it? Finally starting to feel like it. In fact, they pulled away that uh, warning that was going to happen that they potentially shut down power in parts of the East Bay, North Bay, that was scheduled for tomorrow. PG&E said, no, it's gotten cold. Don't have to worry about that anymore. That's good news. Let's see if there's further good news on the traffic front from the KFAX Traffic Center, the latest. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Welcome back to the conversation. Ten minutes before the hour of 6 p.m. here on Tuesday, in case you'd lost track of the week, the day of the week. Hopefully haven't yet. We're all reaching that age at some point, but hopefully not yet. We've talked on this program down through the years about much of the research put forward by 
the Barna Group. And uh, George Barna has been a guest on this program as we've discussed many of the trends that have taken place, not only in American society and culture, but certainly in American spirituality. And, and one thing is for sure, and that is that we've seen a growing march, an exodus, really, out of the church by certain sectors, certain age groups. Um, certainly we've seen it happen amongst millennials and Gen Zers. Um, as they struggle to try to find a greater sense of who they are and what they are and wanting to leave their mark on on life and perhaps what they view as so-called traditional religion, the faith of their fathers, so to speak, is less than satisfying. I would argue that they've never really experienced true faith as such. But that said, when we see those numbers leaving, uh, and not just the young generation, but even folks in their midlife years, in their 30s and 40s. What exactly does this mean? Well, Michelle Van Loon joins us to uh, provide some insights. Michelle, by the way, is the author of five best-selling books, and um, she is um, helping to bring some of the, the energy behind the Wonder Years Gathering, a conference that will be happening at Mount Hermon in February of next year. We'll tell you more about that in a moment. Meanwhile, Michelle, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. So I'm what is this? Sure. What is this sense? They're, they're, they're trying to find their own sense of being, their own sense of identity, and the faith of their fathers is just not cutting it? What's, what's the deal here? Well, I think that um, this is the quiet exodus uh, for all of the attention that's been paid to millennials and Gen Z and kind of um, their exit from the church, their um, kind of de-Christianizing, decoupling from the the church and the faith that they grew up with, at the same time, and in um, very sizable numbers, according to Barna and other pollsters, Pew Research as well, they're saying it's not just our kids and grandkids that are disconnecting, but a lot of us, as, as our kids age out of church, as our kids walk away, as we move into midlife, um, a lot of us are decelerating our our commitment, our, our downgrading, downsizing, or leaving altogether. But we're doing it more quietly in many cases. And and as we do so, I mean, obviously that not only has a big impact on the church, but then you have to wonder, well, are these people completely abandoning their faith, or are they connecting with God, quote-unquote, by other ways and other means? I, I think it is predominantly the latter, but there are some that have been wearied by endless church battles, um, you know, spiritual abuse, church splits, that end up just saying, enough, just, I'm done. But that's not the only reason that people leave church or, or downshift their involvement they may be in a church that's focused on young families, and all of the energy goes to that. Or they're dealing with health issues, caregiving responsibilities, you know, increased job responsibilities. They're at their, their peak kind of moment in their careers as well. And all of those things end up um, being a kind of... A, a challenge to the energy that being committed to church often takes, being being committed as far as time 
and energy and talent and, and showing up every time those doors are open. And of course, that that makes it incumbent then upon the church to to address these issues and and to try to find a means of of of, of creating an atmosphere, a place where people feel compelled to stay, as opposed to um, sort of this lackadaisical, well, kids are all grown, I don't need this anymore, I've had my fair share of bake sales and all of this. Uh, and of course, there's so much more to the community of church life than that. Uh, sadly, though, not everybody recognizes that. Toward that end, I referred to this conference earlier, the Wonder Years Gathering taking place at Mount Hermon in February of next year. Tell us a bit more about this and how it can help people get reconnected. Well, another author, her name is Leslie Leland Fields, and she really is a a multi-selling author. I I am just a a beginner in that regard. Um, We both were very convicted by the fact that women are are kind of pulling out and and not staying involved and the church needs them and they need the community of the church in order to continue to grow now a lot of churches don't do a great job at second half of life discipleship a lot of times we get launched and then the implication is that we just kind of keep doing the same thing over and over again until we die. Well, spiritual disciplines, absolutely, we need to just practice those with faithfulness and and with growth. But the challenges and the opportunities at midlife and beyond are completely different as we're facing caregiving, loss, career change, changes to our home life in terms of an empty nest or relationships, marriages that struggle and some that don't make it and you know all of all of the above being sandwiched in between um, caring for parents and children um, all of that we know that there's lots of conversation that needs to be held and so we created a space um, the first one will be happening at Mount Hermon February 21st through 23rd um, that is an invitation open to your listeners for for women to come together we'll have a, a some really amazing speakers that will be there working with a small group so everybody's voice gets heard if they want to be a part we'll be doing workshops elisa morgan from mops um which is something she did in the first half of her life mothers of preschoolers She doesn't have preschoolers in the house anymore, and she's got a lot to say about what happens as we continue to age and change and grow and mature. It's very countercultural to talk about um, vibrant and meaningful um, life in the second half in a culture that is really trained on first half. But if you go to wonderyearsgathering.com, you'll be able to learn about one thing that we do. We want to partner with local churches, and we want to support and encourage women to be able to step into what God is doing in the second half of their lives through everything from caregiving to marriage to service in their community to spiritual formation. 
And, of course, so many are facing a variety of challenges, part of the sandwich generation, meaning that they're dealing with kids perhaps still of high school, college age, and yet dealing with elderly parents, too, and many of the economic and time stresses that all that presents. How does it impact one's faith, and how can you most importantly learn how to better um, approach your faith in a way that uniquely meets your needs. Gospel never changes, but of course, how we apply it to today's modern living, well, that that takes some effort. TheWonderYearsGathering.com, the website, it's going to be taking place at Mount Hermon, February of next year, and uh, we invite you to check it out. Get more information online, WonderYearsGathering.com. Our thanks to Michelle Van Loon for being with us and for that update on this segment of Lifeline. Six o'clock, the old time on the wall tells me, the little clock on the wall tells me. Let's get a look at what's going on there traffic-wise ahead of some headline news first in the world of traffic. Here's the latest. 